Well, good morning. The book of Jude is where we find ourselves again this morning. If you haven't already, please join me in turning there. We began last week looking at this, uh, this next section, verses 5 through 7, and we will finish uh, looking carefully at those verses this morning. I'd like us to start again by reading from the beginning, and I would ask you as I read and we stand here in just a moment, allow this to be a time, if you've been here, to be reflecting on and remembering what we have heard from Jude up, up to now. Um, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And we'll read once again Jude, verses 1 through 7. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And Father, we do once again pause and bow before you asking your help. We thank you for calling us together this morning, for summoning us as your people to come before you and worship, to be reminded of who you are and what you've done. Lord, thank you for the ways you've done that for us through the songs we have sung and the time in prayer. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we, we, we ask for a spirit of trembling. You have, you have called us out. You have called us to be a people who are humble before you, who tremble at your word. You've given us a heart to, uh, to believe. You've given us eyes to see. And what we see when we see you is wonderful. Lord, as we hear your word this morning, help us to sense the wonder of what we are reading and the great mercy it is to us that you're giving us these reminders even today. So thank you, Lord, for it. And please guard us as we, as we spend time under your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take just a couple of moments to remember what Jude has been doing up to this point as we come into this morning. What has he been preparing us for today? We have seen already that he is writing to fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who are loved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. And he is writing to urge them toward something. He's writing because he has learned, whether through something he has seen or a report he has received, 
He's writing to these that he loves because he has learned that they are facing a great danger. A great danger. Some teachers have come into their midst. Most think these are traveling itinerant teachers that go place to place and spend time with different groups, uh, whether it be that or whether it be a group that has always been there and has risen up from within their midst. Uh, They are facing the danger of these teachers who have insinuated their way into the community, according to verse 4. These are people, he's telling them and has told them, that uh, these people claim to belong to this body. They claim to be united uh, in the faith. But they say that even as they consciously work to subvert that true faith. These are slippery, deceitful people that have come in among them. But we're finding it's not just the individuals, it's not just the persons that are the danger and that Jude is warning them about. Uh, Jude's beloved brothers and sisters in Christ are being threatened with a particular idea. It is the idea that has been described so far that God's grace operates in a certain way. Here's how God's grace operates according to these teachers. God is a gracious God and the result of that grace of God is that I am invited into His grace to live however I please. This is the idea that is being uh, spread among them. I'm invited by the grace of God to live a life on my own terms. I can live with Jesus as my Savior while simultaneously getting to stay on the throne myself. This is wonderful news. It's 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 a highlighting of the tremendous grace of God. And Jude is saying, no, no, these are men who are perverting the grace of God. When they speak of it in these terms, they're not showing you the true grace of God. They're taking the message of God's grace and perverting it into sensuality. What do you think about this idea that God's grace invites us to continue to live however we please? Have you been settled for now for some time in the understanding that that's not what God's grace means for you? And we could ask ourselves this morning, um, what has it meant to me? What has it meant to my decisions? What's it meant to my lifestyle, to my thought processes in recent times? That right now, as you sit and as I stand, right now Jesus is sitting on a throne somewhere. He is enthroned at this very second. What has that reality meant to you. Almost certainly you are here faced with some decisions. You are, we've all come here this morning from a variety of different scenarios in life and facing many different obstacles and different decisions. How should I react to that event? How should I think about this situation? Have you considered it with a conscious awareness that Jesus is sitting on a throne right now and that that might just have something very much to do with the answer to those questions. We're in a set of verses here, verses 5 through 7, that seem to be trying to convince us that um, Jesus finds it very significant how we regard his enthroned status. And I'll remind you of something that you already know, just as Jude is doing here in verse 5, that Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. Right? Can can we even speak in terms of Jesus' opinions? It's difficult to use that word because he is so different from us in that respect. I can have thoughts of things 
and convictions of things. And though my thoughts and convictions don't do a single thing to the reality of the case. But for the Lord Jesus, what he thinks is what reality is. He determines the nature of things. His opinion is the only one that matters. And what we've come to now in verses 5 through 7 is Jude's attempt to show us Jesus' opinion based on how he has behaved in the past. Is Jesus casual in his insistence that we hold fast to him as we go through our lives? And we're being reminded here of a reality that Jesus has demonstrated in all of his interventions in human history, and that is that Jesus calls us to hold fast to the truth that we have been given. We said last week that there's a word for people who do not do that. It's called apostasy, an apostate. Someone who has committed apostasy is one who has had truth uh, entrusted to them, who has known and who has then rejected that knowledge. Apostasy can take a great many different forms. I may walk away transparently with verbal affirmations. I, I, do, not, I do not believe that any longer. I might do it that way. I might not. I might never uh, in my life give voice to that rejection, but instead simply be content to go on living a life that, in spite of what I say, completely rejects the truth that God has shown me. Those are two different forms of the very same reality, a reality of rejection of belief in Christ. Let's remember what we saw uh, last week from verse 5. We're going to focus this morning in verses 6 and 7. Jude is bringing back to the forefront of their mind some things that they have known all along and making a connection to their current circumstances. Uh, these, uh, he's going to give us three examples from history, and he's, he's bringing these back up, uh, these historical examples, not just because they apply in general to our living, but because for his hearers, they apply right now in their situation. They are standing in the midst of a choice. And Jude is saying to them, this is a choice that you're facing akin to the decisions that have had to be made in the past. So let's go back and remember what those situations were like and what the results were. We saw the wilderness generation last week in verse 5. That group, that time in Israel's history when they came out of, uh, of Egypt, uh, went through the wilderness, Moses met with God at Mount Sinai, the wilderness generation. Jude brings their memory back to us, and he reminds us um, of what they had been given. The wilderness generation had received much knowledge from God, hadn't they? Personal experiences of his power and his goodness and his, his ability to save. But what did they do with it? We find as we look through their story in history that they refused to settle in to a posture of trust in God to deliver. And Jude reminds us here in verse 5 that Jesus, who rescued them and brought them out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, I do want us to notice something about that generation of verse 5 that we did not have time for last week before we get into verse 6. It is very helpful to us to watch the process of their destruction. It's informative for us. We said last week that he's probably referring specifically to Numbers chapter 14. That's the time, you remember, when they, were, they had sent the 12 spies up into the promised land and they'd come back with a 10 for 12 bad report. 
And the people went with the bad report. They did not believe. They did not trust that God would deliver them. They despaired. They said, let's find a new leader and go back to Egypt. And they, before God spoke, they picked up stones to, to, to stone to death the two spies who dared to insist. No, God is trustworthy. Let's go where he's leading us. Numbers 14, and that, that account is what he's specifically focusing on here. And in verse 11, when God spoke there, what God said was, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? I want to direct you to think for a few minutes here about the individuals in, that he's talking about, the men and women who are standing there having, having decided that path and now hearing God's judgment in Numbers chapter um, chapter 14. Think about those men and women. What have they been through up to that point? In that chapter, in verse 22, God says of them, he says, yet they have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. And most think when he says ten times there, he's using the number ten as a notion of completeness. Enough. Enough is enough. They have put me to the test and that's it. Um, the reality of the number of times is not that far from 10, though. Exodus 14, they were at the Red Sea. They murmured and did not believe that God would rescue them, and they despaired. Exodus 15, the next chapter, they grumbled at Marah about not, getting, not having clean water, and they were provided for. Exodus 16, they grumbled about not having food. They said, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, but you've brought us out in this wilderness to kill us with hunger, and God provided. Next chapter, chapter 17, these people grumbled about not having water again, and they were provided for. Now remember that at some of these points, the Lord is beginning to discipline, right? They're also beginning to see God's displeasure and to see suffering as a result of a lack of faith. Exodus 32, we have the golden calf incident. They do not believe God. They create an idol after the image of the calf. Um, And we saw last week at the the end of that chapter, 3,000 Israelites are dead in judgment, right? But not these individuals. For every one of these instances of disbelief and death, these individuals are spared every time, right? Because they're still alive in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 11, more complaining. And it says that the fire of God burned among them and consumed some of them. Then in the same chapter, that gets done, and they complain about wanting meat to eat. So God sends them quail and follows that with a severe plague. And they're spared again. Some are not spared, but these ones are spared again. This group that stands at the edge of the promised land and does not believe God, they have gone through all of that. They've watched fellow countrymen die for their disbelief, and they have been spared. And I am convinced that that's something we need to notice as we hear verse 5. What we hear in verse 5 is a warning of Jesus' judgment. But do you hear, when we, when we think about what, what that generation really represented, do you see just how merciful and slow to anger Jesus was for them? How patiently he endured? He owes mercy to whom? He owes mercy to nobody. And yet these men and women he has let live time and time again. And even in this judgment, Jude refers 
refers to in verse 5, when we think of the whole story, it's, it's his patience and his mercy that is set on display. We asked the twofold question this morning. I have a fly that is really involved in this sermon. I hope you'll try to ignore my, my waving. You remember the two sides of the coin last week that we said is on display in these verses. Whom does Jesus deliver and whom does Jesus destroy? Verse 5, we see a people who, in spite of every opportunity, will not believe God. They will not put their trust fully in Jesus to save. And they were destroyed. In verse 6, now this morning, we see an entirely different sphere. We get a glimpse into the angelic realm. And we find that Jesus does not operate differently in different realms. We find that even there, those who would not trust Jesus have found themselves suffering eternal destruction. Verse 6 says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Their failure was likewise a failure to believe God, a failure to trust Him. In verse 5, that disbelief came out of the Israelites through grumbling and complaining and disobeying, not being willing to trust and to follow His lead. And similarly here in verse 6, with the angels, we see disbelief coming out through discontentment with circumstances and subsequently disobedience. These angels, he says, did not stay within their own position of authority. Other translations say they did not keep their own domain or they did not keep their own position. They had received an assignment from God. And in their rebelliousness, they were not content with that assignment. Now, what exactly is he referring to here? There's a lot of disagreement over what what exactly, what historical scenario he is pointing us back to here. Some think that he is speaking of the fall of Satan and his angels in their rebellion. Others think that he is either maybe adopting or at least making reference to the common Jewish understanding of their day of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6 is where we hear about the Nephilim, We hear about it, it says the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children by them. Uh, The Jewish understanding of that day is that that was speaking in reference to fallen angels coming, taking on the form of man and commingling with human women. There are many who who think that that's what Jude is pointing back to here. And there are a lot of reasons why they would think that and want to take that interpretation. The point that Jude is making is clear, however... And that is that even in the angelic realm, when creatures refused to trust the goodness, the sufficiency, the wisdom of God, and so they struck out on their own, the end of their path, and striking out from God on their own, the end of their path was the same. The end of that path is destruction. Jesus destroys those who, not trusting him, will not content themselves with him. And it is explicitly Jesus, again, here. Do you notice that? It simply says, he has kept them in eternal chains. But, of course, the only one that has been being spoken about here is Jesus. Uh, Back in verse 5, Jesus afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And here, he, Jesus, 
has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This is a second illustration of the same point. And that gloomy darkness of judgment that he is bringing to their mind is a terrifying reality. It's a terrifying reality that is directly applicable to Jude's audience. Remember, he's not just reminding them of these events. He's making clear that these events apply to the situation his hearers are in. And with this description of the judgment of gloomy darkness, you can see that if you glance down at verse 13. Verse 13 is uh, amid a passage describing the current false teachers that Jude's audience is uh, being faced with. And it says of them there, it says, For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Remember what happened to these angels and where they went. Remember how they would not content themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and what happened to them. That end is the end that has been reserved for these false teachers that are trying to tempt you to adopt their ways. Is that really the group you want to identify yourself with? I would remind you of these things, not for the information, but because they are the same. The stakes are the same. Now, regarding these angels, we could try to say a lot more than we have. And I find this an interesting question. What is he really pointing to here? Uh, A lot of trees have fallen in the pursuit of that question. Is this pointing to Genesis 6? Is it pointing to something else? I don't think that that would be the right use of our time this morning to go down that rabbit trail. Um, I I think uh, I'm going to read a quote from John Calvin here because I think that he was being very wise when he wrote this. He wrote this in his commentary to, of Second Peter. You might have noticed in your bulletin a handout there that shows just how uh, relevant Second Peter is to what we're reading here. Jude and Peter in, in that letter are addressing the same sort of scenario, and there's much that we can gain from that. We'll see that a bit, uh, not much, but a little bit later. But about that, here's what Calvin wrote. That's the same issue of angels and uh, being not defined, clearly, comes up in 2 Peter. And Calvin says this. But as, as Peter mentions here, but briefly, the fall of angels, and as he has not named the time and the manner and other circumstances, it behooves us soberly to speak on the subject. Most men are curious and make no end of inquiries on these things, But since God and Scripture has only sparingly touched on them, and as it were, by the way, he thus reminds us that we ought to be satisfied with this small knowledge. Indeed, they who curiously inquire do not regard edification. He's saying those who who insist on going further to satisfy their curiosity, they're not doing that in an effort to be built up in the faith. They do not regard edification, but rather seek to feed their souls with vain speculations. What is, do you believe this this morning? What is useful to us, God has made known. Here, that is, that the devils were at first created, that they might serve and obey God, but that through their own fault they apostatized, because they would not submit to the authority of God. That's why Jude's bringing this up as a case study of what happens when we will not, we persist in refusing to submit to the authority that God has over us in his Son. 
There is one final principle I would draw your attention to from verses 5 and 6, these two uh, reminders of Jude before we move to verse 7. It is striking to me. We've already spoken a bit about what we see about the patience of God from verse 5. Do you notice some things about these two examples set back to back? Remember that the final verdict on that wilderness generation was preceded by great Patience, And we've already heard the list of all the things that God endured from those men and women, uh, all the while holding out to them, offering them deliverance. God's judgment of rebellion is often preceded by great patience, isn't it? How patient has the Lord been with you? No one knows that better than you. How patiently has he borne with you? When I think about how much he has borne with in me, even after bringing me to himself, how patiently he endures, it is beyond imagination. And the truth of 2 Peter 3.9 is inescapable to us, and it is a great joy. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is an expression of the heart of God as he displays patience. And we see it clearly in verse 5. But what is followed on its heels in verse 6? What do we see in that example? We see a, a host. We see a race of beings, beings of great glory. And of that, that race of beings, we see a group who fall a group who rebel and will not believe. And we find that they are not spared. And of the lot of them, how many of them were offered redemption after the fact? The answer is zero. Zero. No fallen angel has had the mercy of God extended to them. Hebrews 2.16 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. God's, re- God's judgment of rebellion is right. And it's true what he tells us in Romans. That it's a quote of the Old Testament that God extends mercy to whom he will extend mercy. Do you see what we take from that? Paired with verse 5. I am in the wrong place. Anytime I expect that I will choose sin and have no reason to fear. Anytime that I will choose sin with the thought, well, God is a gracious God, so I'm sure nothing's going to happen as I make this decision. That is not the grace that has been extended. And let the example of the fallen angels remind us of who we are dealing with and of the freedom that he has to judge and to discipline sin. Those two examples pair very well with each other because of our tendencies to extremes our tendencies to the pendulum. Now, the third example that Jude points to, he comes at it, verse 7. And it's the third example that demonstrates, as well, how God responds to the refusal to hold fast to his truth. Here, he comes to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7 says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Now, if you remember the interpretive struggles that I mentioned about in verse 6 about the angels, the ones that were working hard to not spend much time uh, inappropriately focusing on, we do have to think about them again for just a moment as we're looking at verse 7 because they have an impact on what we think verse 7 is doing, how we would read it. So I would just make a quick couple of clarifications about how verse 7 is connected to verse 6. Because here's the question. Is verse 7 proof that verse 6 is talking about Genesis 6, angels committing sexual sin? It's often read that way. Of course, that's what verse 6 is talking about because look at what happens in verse 7. There are two... I'm saying that to say that's what the argument is. I'm not saying that that's that's where I go with that. Uh, But there are a couple of, of clear connections made between these two verses. So please, for a minute, look very carefully with me at verse 7. Right? There are two words, uh, two phrases that serve a connecting purpose here. You start off with just as. Right? Something happened in verse 6, and then it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So there is some way that Sodom and Gomorrah is connected to what he just said in verse seven, in verse 6. Do you see that? The other that we see is the word likewise. It says, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. Somebody, somewhere in this passage, engaged in sexual immorality, likewise to what he's saying in verse 7, right? So we have to, we have to try to understand what the connections are here that he's, that he's making. Let's start with the just as and, and, and be very clear about what he is drawing together. How is Sodom and Gomorrah like the example before it? Our boys are not here this morning. They're with, uh, they're, with uh, their grandparents. If they were here, they might groan audibly, or at least in their mind, because I'm going to say that grammar is uh, the operating factor here, and I can hear them sensing me saying that and going, oh, Dad. Grammar is, is important. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, all right, just as Sodom and Gomorrah did what? What's the end of that statement? What's the end of the direct statement he's making? There, is, there are qualifiers in the middle there, some descriptors, but the end of the statement, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the verb that follows it is the verb serve. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The point he's making is still about the inevitable reality that a rebellious departure from God will result in judgment. So the just as is pointing to verse 6, but not in a way that sheds any light on the question of which angels he's talking about. The connection is, when the angels did this, they were judged. And in that same way, when Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities did that, they were judged. You notice the three examples are visible people of God, angelic realm, Gentile world. It doesn't matter where you go. When you will not submit and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior given to men. There is only one end to that path. He belabors that point with these three examples. The other connecting word that we have, we're seeing here is the word likewise. So many point to that and they say, see, the Sodomites' sexual sin, in verse 7, is likewise to the sin of the angels. So this must be telling us that he's talking about angels and uh, sexual perversion in Genesis 6. A lot of people take that position, and that may be exactly what he is doing here. That is possible. It's not a difficult reading. There are a lot of people we would respect that would say that. However, it is also possible, and in an equally simple way with no jumping through hoops required, 
that that's not the connection that's being made. It's very likely that he is not connecting Sodom to the angels in verse 6. He's connecting the surrounding cities to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's another distinct possibility here. Can you listen carefully as I read this both ways? It all depends on a comma. And my boys go, oh, grammar and punctuation. If 6 and 5, excuse me, if 7 and 6 are the likewise here, here's what we read. We say in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, that's very possible. If that's what he's doing, then verse 6, the angels were engaged in some sort of sexual immorality. But what if we read it like this? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. See, that's, that's equally possible. And if that's what he's doing, the connection is that, remember, Sodom and Gomorrah were not the only two cities destroyed in that story. The surrounding cities were destroyed as well, all except for one that God spared because Lot could make it there and God chose to spare that city. But the other surrounding cities were wiped out. So he may well be simply saying, when God wiped out those other cities... It was for the same sin. They had, they had likewise indulged in sexual immorality, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the case for all of them? They all serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, this reminds us of a, of a, a piece, an important piece of that story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is Lot, Lot and his family. Lot isn't mentioned here. But when we remember that Lot belongs to this story, we see how the two sides of the coin we've been talking about are borne out as he brings up this example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone did not get destroyed in that story. God worked to rescue Lot and his family. Now, I thought about having you take a look now at the handout, the bulletin handout. I might just suggest that you take that home and take a few minutes to look at that on your own time. It is very uh, striking, and it's helpful for us to see uh, how, uh, how relevant Jude and Second Peter are to one another. Uh, but the result of that is that uh, we can go to Second Peter chapter 2, hear him speak about the same examples, and gain some things from that. So I would ask you to do that for a moment. Look over at Second Peter 2. Starting in verse 4, notice some things that Peter emphasizes when he brings up these same examples to make the very same point. I'm going to read verses 4 through 9 of 2 Peter 2. You'll hear a series of if statements. He's building a big if-then argument. Right? If these things are true, then what do we learn? Verse 4, for if... God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, there's an example that Jude didn't mention, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought, upon, uh, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, then, if this is what God has done in all of these situations, what are we supposed to learn? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Two sides of the same coin. Do you notice that Peter here mentions not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but also Lot? That he mentions in verse 5, not just the flood, but also Noah? His point here is not unlike Jude's point in our verses. If he acted thus, then what is true? And he answers it in verse 9. What's true is that we find proof that God knows two things. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, but also how to rescue the godly from trials. Both realities are on display as we go back on the Old Testament and read these paradigm-setting accounts. Remember, that's how Paul portrayed it, that these things were given as paradigms for us. To read them, see what God has done, and go, oh, this is the God that reigns today. This is what the Lord Jesus is like as he sits on his throne today. In all three of these examples, coming back to Jude, creatures had the truth of God revealed to them. The Israelites had Moses. And they had, we find from Jude, they had Jesus personally revealing the power and the care of God. The angels had known God's presence. They had been commanded by God himself. Sodom and Gomorrah, they had Lot. And they had the testimony of natural revelation. The sort of thing that Romans chapter 1 makes very clear, that all mankind is gifted with, with a certain inescapable knowledge of God. And after he says that, and after he speaks in detail about sexual perversion as the result of God giving us over to our degrading passions, he lists out unbelieving mankind in terms of characteristics. And he says in verse 32 that they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. We know this. Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of the city, they knew this. In Genesis 19, we read some very important details of the story. Verse 6 says, Lot went out to the men at the entrance. Remember, they've now surrounded his house. The two guests have come into his home who are, who are angels, and, and, uh, but they do not know that. They've surrounded the house, and they've demanded that, that, uh, that Lot send these two guests out so that they can be abused. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so, you remember the word? Do not act so wickedly. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, speaking of Lot, came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Verse 7, do not act so wickedly. They had had the wickedness of their deeds declared to them by God's man. Verse 9, what were they upset about? He has become the judge. What were they upset about? Don't tell me what's right. Don't tell me what to do. We don't want to hear what is right. They were exposed to the truth, and they rejected it. There are boundaries within the created order that God has established 
And our knowledge of him leads us to the conviction that he is the one who calls the shots. He knows what is best for us. And so his boundaries are not things to be pushed. I want us to close this morning by by working for us to see uh, the sorts of questions that these reminders that Jude is giving us in verses 5 through 7 should be presenting in our minds. These are questions that would belong in the mind of every single one of us in here this morning. Because we are recipients of truth too. Has God kept you in the dark from his truth? Or have you received by his mercy great truth, much truth? I mean, think of where we live. Think of when we live. Think of what he has given us access to. So the question is this, how have I responded to the gift that God has given me? The gift of a revelation of himself. Has what God has shown me of himself led me to a place of greater willingness to trust him in times of uncertainty? That's what we see in verse 5. A people given revelation of God, but that revelation of God does not lead them to a place where they will trust him in times of uncertainty. They were in times of great uncertainty. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. And they are judged because in the midst of that, because of what God has given them, they should have known that he was trustworthy. And that knowledge did not translate into a willingness to trust him in times of uncertainty. What is his knowledge given to me produced? My times of uncertainty are what will bear that out. Has what God has shown me of himself led me to agree with him concerning the virtue of contentment? It's what should have happened with the angels. They should have seen the great honor it is to play a small part, any part, in the great plan of God. And they were not. They were not willing to be content with what the perfect, all-knowing, loving God had for them. Has what he has shown me about himself led me to a place where I agree with him about the rightness of contentment. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6 say this, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? These angels, whoever they were, did not conclude from the truth of God given them that they could be content with their appointed lot. But to borrow from Hebrews 6, 9, Beloved, we are convinced of better things for you and things that accompany salvation. When the Lord is working in us and growing us into what he has planned for us, when he has saved us, called us to himself from before the foundations of the earth, and he is working that salvation in us. What he does is he shows us his sufficiency. And he grows humility in us by leading us through times of uncertainty, times of temptation, times in which we fail and fall and come out the other side and we look back and go, why? He, how, how much will he need to show me before I will trust him? Another word for that is humble. He humbles us because he loves us. 
the way this question can come out of verse 7 is this. How has what God has shown me of himself led me to joyfully accept and submit to the boundaries that he has created? It didn't do that for Sodom and Gomorrah. And they serve as an example to this day. What has it done for me? We are a people who have boundaries all around us. Parameters that God has set for our good. And the good of those that we love. Do we care about the boundaries that he has established? If you are a parent, the fact that you've come into that role as a parent means that God now has certain boundaries on you in terms of what he calls you to, in terms of how you ought to think, how you ought to live. If you are a child in here this morning, I hope to see a bunch of little heads perk up. Kiddos, the fact that you're in this very short period of your life called childhood, that means God's put some boundaries on your life right now that are, he did it on purpose because he loves you and he's going to use that for your good. And most of your life, you're not going to be a child. You know that? We tried to do the math one one night. What percentage of your life, child, will you be called a child? It's a small, it's not that big of of a number. But while you're a child, God has put certain parameters on your life. What do we think about those parameters? Even at your age, Guys and gals, little guys and gals, you, you've been learning some things about God. What have you learned? Is he good? You, can you trust him? Does he love us? If the answer is yes, then how do we think about the walls he's put around us at different stages? We have to see them as good things. If you are a fellow member of this church, you've entered into a covenant membership with one another here. That put parameters on your life instituted by God, commanded by the Scriptures, what do you think about those things? Sodom and Gomorrah is the example of those who didn't care about the boundaries that God has set up. Is that the path that's persuasive? Or can you look at those that God has put in your life that have lived and walked with the Lord a long time, that have loved His church, can you look at the fruit of their life and go, "Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? He has not left us without examples of why he is worthy to be trusted and loved and obeyed. Each of these things boil down to one main thing. Do we believe God? Do we believe that he is who he says that he is? And not just the fact of it, but the goodness of it, the worthiness of it, and the claim that that places upon my trust The false teachers of verse 4 deny their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. His master status was rejected in all of these examples, and the outcome was always the same. Do we see him as worthy of our trust? Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Would you pray with me? Father, we we have come to the end of this time you have given us. And we thank you for it. Lord, help us all in here to see that it is no coincidence, it is no accident that we have sat under this passage this morning. You have ordained it. You've given us these warnings. Not because your people are people who do not 
find conviction in your warnings. All of us in this room hear these warnings, see these examples, and think of ways that we have failed you, ways that we've fallen short. All of us in here have that reaction. Help us, Father, to remember that what distinguishes us as yours is not that we find no conviction in these things. It's that when we hear these things, we hear the voice of God. We know this is you. And so we know that you have given this to us this morning because we need it. This is instruction and example for us right now today. Father, help us to be impacted by your warnings, to see them as the fearful things that they are. Help us to to feel in such a way, to think in such a way that we can't get these thoughts out of our mind. It leads us to introspection, and it leads us as well to an even deeper love of Christ who knew the people he was saving. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his patience. Lord, help us to use your patience as a means of repentance, that every day of our life would be a day of repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction this morning? Taken from Psalm chapter 20. The psalmist writes this, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May he answer us when we call. Amen. We are dismissed.